Well, for the sermon this morning, we're turning to the Old Testament, uh, the book of Habakkuk, chapter 2. We're looking at three short verses this morning. This is the first of five woes that God proclaims against the Chaldeans, the kingdom of Babylon, and of course to all those um, who strive against his way and his law. So Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, this is the word of God for us. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? And those who awake will make you tremble. Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and to all who dwell in them. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Please be seated. It's a quick reminder of where we are in this book. The prophet Habakkuk cried out to God about the wickedness of Jerusalem, the sin and violence that abounded, and he asked, Lord, why is it this way? What will you do? What's your plan? The Lord answered, my plan is to send the Chaldeans to stop the wickedness of my people. Last week we talked about Habakkuk's response. Lord, why is that your plan? I, I don't like that plan. God answered. God revealed his fuller plan. It's always been his plan to build a people who walk by faith, not by sight of the things of this world. But now God will continue to answer the prophet's question by assuring Habakkuk and us and all of God's people that his judgment surely comes against the wicked kingdoms of this world. There are five woes that God proclaims. The first one, really the first two, are predominantly about money. And that's a bit of a problem. We've mentioned this in sermons before, but if there are three things you're not supposed to talk about in polite conversation, they are religion and politics and money. Now, as brothers and sisters gathered here to worship God, I imagine that we're comfortable talking about religion to each other. Why are we here? I know that we're comfortable talking about politics. That comes out quite easily. But I, I imagine... It is still difficult for us to talk about money, isn't it? I know that's true because I've listened to a lot of sermons, as have you, and I've listened to ser uh, preachers I admire preach on hot topics, right, on injustice or on sexual immorality or on adultery or on pride or on laziness, but it's only when they're preaching up money that they have to preface their sermon, oh, I'm sorry, but the sermon today is about money. The sermon today is about giving. The sermon today is about tithing. It's uncomfortable, isn't it? But it's not uncomfortable for God. Not uncomfortable for the Lord at all. We read 1 Timothy 6, that the Lord cares deeply about what we do with our money, and that's why the first two woes to Babylon and to any evil kingdom is how they misuse their money. And so we want to be conformed in the image of God. We want our minds to be renewed by His Word. We want to change the way that we feel comfortable thinking, even talking about money. By way of introduction, I want to start with a quote from C.S. Lewis's uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, in which he imagines a dialogue from one older demon training his nephew on the ways of tempting and vexing human beings. And one of the things the older demon says is that it's curious that humans so frequently blame us demons for putting evil thoughts into their head, 
when he says our greatest victory is when we cause them to think nothing at all. And so we don't want that to be true of us, that we don't think about money, we don't think about God's word and how it applies to it because it's awkward, because it's difficult, because it's hard. We want to fill our minds with truth, with even God's rebuke about money this morning, so we're going to dive right into Habakkuk chapter 2, and there's simply two points. The first one is this, it's probably what's at the head of your Bible, woe to the Chaldeans. Now the second point is going to remove any security you might have saying, oh well I'm not a Chaldean doesn't work that way. But we do want to start with God's proclamation as he's giving it to Habakkuk. Woe to the Chaldeans. And there are two sub-points here. When God is proclaiming woe to the Chaldeans, who would come to be known as the Babylonians, their first woe is this, that they have built up a spurious strength. Now spurious is maybe a little bit of a fancy word, but it means untrustworthy. It means withering. It means not real. And so what God is proclaiming to Habakkuk is that although it looks like the Babylonians are strong because they have wealth, and although the Babylonians build up wealth to make themselves strong, it's spurious, it's false, and it's a house of cards. That's right here at the second part of verse 6. Woe to him who heaps up what's not his own. It's building language. So what the Babylonians are doing is, is trying to erect a castle, even a kingdom, out of wealth. And we know that Babylon is not going to be the first or the last to attempt to establish strength through wealth. One of the peculiar woes that should come to Babylon is how much they are both rising up against and then copying the Assyrians. And that's kind of part and partial to what God is saying in this woe. He's saying, you are building up strength for yourself as if you will protect you. God is calling the Babylonians to remember the very reason you're rising up is to overthrow an Assyrian empire that built up wealth to protect itself. So how can it be that anyone thinks that wealth will truly protect you on the end? Right? This is Building a house out of wealth is not just similar to building it out of straw. It might look fine, but it has no vigor to it. And similarly, after rebuking them for this spurious strength, for thinking that wealth is good enough, he's going to particularly rebuke them for a wicked kind of wealth. They have both spurious strength and wicked wealth. Because greed always ends up hurting other people. That's God's message here in chapter 2. In order for you to build up strength, you have to load yourself with pledges. You cannot amass great wealth in a vacuum. Right? One man sitting by himself in the middle of Antarctica might have a million pounds of gold and would have no money. Right? And so we know that economy requires other people, but in particular... If you are building your strength on your wealth, right, which is greed, if you are building your strength on your wealth, then you are necessarily harming other people. If that's what you're building your kingdom on, if your trust and security and the definition is on your wealth, then you're going to be harming other people when you do it. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? This is a woe to the Babylonians. But again, it's ironic because the Babylonians were the debtors to the Assyrians. In fact, it's the Assyrian taxes and their corruption and their tyranny over Babylon that inspires this people to rise up and throw off the Assyrian Empire. We, we read that back in, in Nahum, that this was actually God's chosen way to punish the Assyrians. But now the Babylonians are doing the very same thing that happened to them. In order to amass a wealth and build their kingdom on it, they're seeking to oppress other peoples. 
And we should understand that this is in a lot of ways actually the basis of ancient warfare. It's not so common anymore. But one of the main ways you went to war, one of the main reasons you went to war in the ancient world was quite simply for money. There are other reasons as well. Maybe you hated them. Right? Maybe they stole your wife and you and your buddies sailed across the Aegean Sea to take her back. But by and large, the point was that if you could conquer another nation, you could impose vassalage on them and require from them tremendous sums of money. Not only at the moment of your conquering, right? when you conquer the city, you're able to plunder it and take everything out of it, but then going forward, you require an annual payment of money. And this became the basis for, I would say, the majority of ancient warfare. Right? The more kingdoms you could conquer, the more money you could pull out of them. We see this happen to Israel at the end of their time in the kingdom. That they are conquered. What the conquerors do is they run in and they, they pilfer what exists in Israel and in Judah. And then they impose heavy taxes on them. And so God is telling Habakkuk that that kind of wicked wealth and spurious strength, even though it looks very scary to you right now, I promise you I will bring it tumbling down like a house of cards. I want us to imagine that there's a great wildfire, which, you know, happens in Arizona sometimes. And maybe it's coming down off the mountains, right? It's been a dry year. It hasn't recently, right? But let's say it's been dry and there's a great wildfire. And imagine that somebody stands up and says, citizens of Arizona, I have a great idea. In order to protect ourselves from the wildfire, I'm going to build a giant wall. And you go, that, that might work. What are you going to use to build the wall? And he says, oh, good news, wood. I, I don't think that's going to work, Bob. But if you're building your, your, your whole comfort on wealth, right, and you think that's what's going to protect you from other wicked nations, right, the way to throw off the Assyrians with their spurious strength and their wicked wealth is to get more wealth yourself. The way to protect yourselves against those who would steal your wealth is to steal wealth from other people. It's like building a wooden wall to protect yourself from fire. And that's God's will. Woe to those who build their confidence on money and steal it and harm other people in doing so. And so God promises, and it's come true again and again and again, hasn't it in history. He promised them, because you plunder the nations, they will plunder you. We know, we know historically as a fact that this happened to Babylon. We know as a fact that this happened to Nineveh, that it happened to Egypt. Right? Every empire falls. Now, the people living in the empire don't think it's going to happen. But then one day, Rome is sacked and it's on fire. And so God is saying that this is always going to happen, and woe to those who forget. But in this entire rebuke to the Babylonians, and we talked about this last week, there is a not-so-thinly-veiled rebuke to the Israelites themselves. Because what has defined the kingdom of Israel for the past couple hundred years, go read Second Chronicles, what has defined Israel for the past couple hundred years except a slavish devotion to building up wealth? We can go all the way back to Solomon, the wisest king who ever lived. But what's one of the main things Solomon is known for? Is tremendous overflowing wealth. And the Bible doesn't necessarily say, when talking about Solomon, we'll get to this in a minute, about how Solomon got his wealth. But we see the minute Solomon gets his wealth, He's already in violation of Deuteronomy's description of a king, that he would not be a man who has great wealth or chases great wealth and horses and money. And yet that becomes what defines Solomon and defines all of his sons on both sides of the kingdom. Again and again and again and again, go home and read Second Chronicles this week. 
the kings of Israel and Judah chase after wealth. And so they erect idols, which are a great money-making venture. They mourn foreign wives to get foreign inheritances. They go to war to extract money from other nations. So even though, yes, there's been idolatry, there's been sexual immorality, there have been all these problems in Israel, make no mistake that when God is rebuking the Babylonians for building their strength on their money and for wickedly harming other people and attaining that money, it is clearly a rebuke to Israel at the same time. And that's going to be true of all of these woes. Everything that God rebukes the Babylonians for and promises to judge them for are things that are already true of Israel. So now we get to the second part of our sermon. Woe to the Chaldeans must mean woe to those who live in the kingdom of God but act like Babylonians. That might be a little bit long for your notes, so you know, shorten it up however you want. Woe to the Israelites. Woe to Christians. Woe to those who have greed. That is inescapable because this language is meant to evoke for Habakkuk the greed and the corruption and the oppression of the poor that's come to define Israel. In fact, there are some minor prophets that spend most of their time rebuking Israel for the ways that they have done exactly what Habakkuk 2, 6 through 8 describes. Oppressing the poor, building up great wealth for themselves. So what does this look like when it's woe not only to those outside the kingdom, but those inside the kingdom? Well, we talked about that the Babylonians have a woe coming to them because they have a spurious strength. They're building a wall of straw. I want to invite us to turn to Luke chapter 12 this morning as a companion text. Luke chapter 12, verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And so Jesus said to them, take care, be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And so he told them a parable and said, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought for himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. So the man said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, who will they belong to? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. As God proclaims woe to the Chaldeans, he proclaims woe to all people and asks them, what do you trust as your strength and your stay? Let's look at verse 6 again. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. To be clear, this rebuke refers to theft and to greed, to pilfering illegally and unjustly what does not belong to you. But look at now in the context of Luke chapter 12 and ask ourselves that if we believe that God is creator and Lord, what exists that does not belong to him? And so we see that we are building a spurious strength in our hearts if we start by defining the wealth as ours at all. Woe to you who build up what does not belong to you. 
what does not belong to us? Our wealth. In fact, everything that God has given us. That's what Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 12. Now, this obviously spurs all kinds of questions. Does that mean it's wrong to build bigger storehouses with my money? Does that mean it's wrong to put my money in the bank? Does that mean it's wrong to match my employer's 401k? Is it wrong to put money in my kid's college account? Is it wrong for me to store and save and be wise? But here's what Jesus is saying. You can't ask those questions first. Those are fine questions. But they can't be the first question. The first question that all mankind is asked is, who does this belong to? Who does my wealth belong to? Who does my house belong to? Who does my family belong to? Who do the birds of the air and the animals of the field and the fish in the sea, who do these things belong to? And they belong to God. That's the first question. That's the question that Jesus is teaching in his parable. You cannot store up treasure for yourself and believe that it totally belongs to God. And so this is now the call for the Christian. Now, what's the test? What's the test to see if we are like the Chaldeans, like the Assyrians, like the Israelites, we are building up strength in our wealth because we think it's ours and it doesn't first belong to God's? Well, guess what? Jesus gives that test in the continuation of this passage. He said to his disciples, do not be anxious about your life. For life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap, yet they have nor storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. This, this reference to the storehouse is clear that Jesus is continuing this same point. And so he says, which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his life? If you are not able to do such a small thing as that, then why are you anxious about anything else? Instead, if there is a Bible verse, even children here today, five-year-olds, six-year-olds, I'm begging you to memorize. The fullness of Jesus' teaching on wealth is summarized in Luke 12, 31. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and these things will be added to you. So the question is not, the question cannot be first, second, or third, is it okay for me to have a 401k? Is it okay for me to have a retirement? Is it okay for me to make more money next year than this year? That's not the question. The question is, who does my wealth belong to? And am I first seeking the kingdom of heaven above everything else? And if I'm seeking the kingdom of heaven and I am trained by his word, then I know that the Bible says things like, the one who does not leave an inheritance to his children hates them. The Bible says things like, let him who does not work not eat. The Bible proclaims woes against those who are not careful with what God has given them, who are poor stewards. So that means none of these things are wrong. It's not wrong to save or be wise or be shrewd or to care and provide for those around you and for your church, but that can't be the first question. And that's what we see in the Chaldeans. Their first question is, how can I possibly amass more wealth and take it from more people so that I can be more safe? And God says that's the opposite of safe because if you're doing that, you will be destroyed. The first question when it comes to your wealth is, who does it belong to? And who are you seeking in it? Is it the kingdom of heaven? Well, then secondly, we considered a, a certain kind of wicked wealth which takes from people around us. And that can also be challenging for us to hear, right? That, that greed always harms other people. In fact, I think one of the reasons why we're comfortable with greed is because we often imagine that it is a victimless crime. Maybe we're stealing from a giant corpor faceless corporation. Maybe we're stealing from somebody who has more than we do. But we tend to think that our greed and that our love of money doesn't hurt other people. 
But that's never true. That's, that's never true biblically. And by way of illustration, I want us to think about what the kings of Israel bring on the people of Israel. When they wage these wars for the sake of their own wealth or even the wealth of the kingdom, when they seek to oppress other hostile nations but for the sake of getting more wealth, we need to make more mistake about it. There are people dead in the streets. And that continues to today. Every time unemployment increases 1%, 20,000 people die. Right? Every time the cost of bread and milk and eggs double, triple, and quadruple, that means that there are the neediest and poorest among us who can't buy what they basically need to survive. Woe to us if we think that our relationship with wealth doesn't harm the people around us. Right? Now, what's, what's the test of this? I think we, if, 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 if having your strength and money produces, what does Jesus say, anxiousness, then ignoring the wickedness sometimes of our greed, what does that look like? And it looks like this. It looks like the ends justifying the means. I think there could be no more, sign, more sure sign that we are ignoring the wickedness of our greed and self-justifying our actions by pretending that the ends justify the means. And I don't think there's a single more clear line through Scripture of greed than that possibility. Let's go as far back as you want. Balaam is told not to pronounce a curse upon God. Why does he do it? Money. The kings of Israel are told not to worship foreign idols or take foreign wives. Why do they do it? Money. The saints in the New Testament are called to give everything they have for the sake of the church, but Ananias and Sapphira take and, and keep to themselves. Why do they do it? Money. Simon Magus cries out and asks for the blessing of God. Why does he do it? He offers to pay for it because he thinks the blessing of God might bring him wealth. In each one of these circumstances, brothers and sisters, we know the person who's given into greed and wickedness is totally convinced that what they're doing is right. And the absolute pinnacle of this is Judas Iscariot. What was his job among the apostles? He was the keeper of the purse. He was the keeper of the purse. And so he betrays Christ for money. I think, again, the pinnacle of this, if the pinnacle of God's treatment of strength is seek ye first the kingdom of God, find your trust and your strength in me, not in your storehouses and your wealth. If this call to, to realize how wicked our greed is and to turn is found in a story involving Judas Iscariot. And that's when a woman, a sinner, spends all that she has uh, so that she might buy expensive perfume. And the reason she does this is she wants to anoint Jesus. But what's Judas's response to that? How dare you, woman, we could have done something else good with that. The ends justifying the means. We could have fed 10 poor people. We could have built a new house. We could have funded X and Y and Z. And of course, Jesus rebukes him. What greater use for our wealth is there than worshiping God? What greater use for our wealth could there ever be? So I'm going to quote the screw tape letters again. Again, the older demon is encouraging the younger one. He says, know this is one of your tools, that nothing makes a man fall in love with this world more than prosperity. Because when he has prosperity, he imagines that he's finding his place in this world, but in reality, the world is finding its place in him. Because we don't believe that there might be anything wicked about our greed. We don't believe there's anything wrong with taking as much as we want or as we need. Can we, with Augustine, proclaim, Lord, give me provision 
but stop providing for me when it tempts me to trust in wealth instead of you. It's a scary prayer. I can confess to you this morning that I have come very close to praying that prayer and stopped many times. There are many, many times I've cried out, Lord, take away from me whatever you need to take away from me, and that sentence got choked in my throat because then I was afraid he would do it. What does Jesus say with wealth? Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and these things will be added to you. Now, we started with a screw tape quote. Let's, let's close with another one. We know that as Christians, we, we can't just refuse to talk about money. That's, that's not an option. We can't, we can't refuse to be honest that maybe we're trusting in it or we're not seeing how wicked it is, how it's hurting other people, and we're justifying it. We need to be honest, right? We need to talk about that. But there's another temptation, and that temptation is asceticism. All right, good, no money. Money's bad, right? Love, love of money is the root of many evils. First Timothy says we should have no money. We should give everything away, right? We should totally disabuse ourselves of wealth. We should be poor beggars in the streets. What does Paul say in Colossians 2? He says, watch out for people who tell you that. Watch out for them because they're false teachers. Watch out for those who assist on asceticism and violence to the body. It has the appearance of godliness, but it produces nothing. Why does it produce nothing? Because like the Chaldeans, like the Israelites, it's still thinking that your relationship to money is what defines you. You have a lot of it, you have no of it, but that's the definition of who you are. That's still wrong. The only thing that can define our money in the kingdom of God is heaven's king. Is Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we are called to be brutally honest. Not refuse to talk about our money. To be brutally honest with what God has given it so that we might be brutally open to following his will. That does not mean, brothers and sisters, that you need to empty your bank account today and put it in the church collection plate. I don't have authority to say this, but I think the session would agree with me. If that's what you take away from the sermon, we will give your money back to you. That is not why we're preaching this message. We're preaching this message because the woe to the Chaldeans is a woe to every human heart. Watch out for how powerful money is in you. Watch out for how much it demands that you trust in it, that you build it up like a wall and you protect yourself with your money. Watch out for how quickly you ignore what greed can do to other people, how much they are oppressed and broken because of your pursuit of money. Be honest with it but then see that it's a gift from God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. In both Luke chapter 12 and across the Gospels, Jesus' teaching on money is quite simple. Our money is given for us for the love of God and then to love other people. Stop me if you've heard that before. Sounds like a good quote, right? Churches should consider using that. Love God, love other people. But the question is, even then... Are we doing that for Christ or for some other reason? Because we've seen in Judas, we've seen across the Old and New Testament that, that we can even convince ourselves that we're serving God but when we're really serving ourselves. And so the gift, the gift that God is proclaiming in Habakkuk chapter 2 is that you can, brothers and sisters, be totally free from money being your comfort. You can. In Christ Jesus, you can be free. You can be free from money being your comfort and you can be free from the cycle of evil and wicked and oppression that money pretends. You can be free, but you can only be free one way with your money, and that's if you seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And so my promised screw tape quote. 
The older demon is again talking to the younger demon, and he says, a half-formed religion is as useful for us demons as no religion at all. A half-formed religion is as useful to the kingdom of darkness as no religion at all. You have been given already by faith the full kingdom of heaven. You have already been given that which the Babylonians and the Assyrians and the Greeks and the Persians and the Romans could never achieve for themselves. Treasures in heaven that will last forever. You already have those things. You cannot earn them by giving to missionaries and you cannot keep them by amassing great wealth for yourself in this world. You already have treasures in heaven. A half-formed devotion to Christ is as useful to you as no devotion at all. Instead, if there is a woe to greed, if there is a woe to strength and wealth, if there is a woe to wicked wealth, what that means is there is freedom in Christ to be open about how we use our money, what we use our money. And we can watch out for it. If, if, if I'm anxious, it might be a good sign that I'm trusting in my strength. And if I'm angry, it might be a good sign that I'm defensive about the ends justifying the means. But above all else, you are already free in Christ today. You are already free in Christ. And, and the greatest picture of that, to end on this note, is the usage of money which most delights Jesus Christ in the Bible. Does anyone know what it is? I guess we don't do call and response in Presbyterian sermons. The moment that makes Jesus' heart leap for joy is when the widow with nothing gives one penny. God does not need your money, but it's already his. God does not need what you have, but it's already his. And when that widow with nothing gave, it was as delightful to God, Spurgeon says, as all of the sacrifices of the Old Testament. That one mite was the most pleasing aroma that went up to heaven because of what it reflected to her was that she trusted in God and not her wealth. Because it expressed her faith, not because she was poor after she did it. Not because it was some radical act that shocked the people. It was wonderful to God because it expressed how much she loved him and that she trusted in him instead of this money which will destroy our very soul. That means if you don't have money today, then God loves you and you can glorify him. And that means if you have exceeding wealth today, God loves you and you can glorify him. But it won't come by building up treasures in this world or ignoring how dangerous greed is. It will come by seeking first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there are so many religions and philosophies in this world that are built on wealth and will to power. And Lord, you know our hearts and how we love shiny things. But we're here this morning because we love you more. We don't say that arrogantly or proudly as if it's been our choice and our power and our strength to love you more. We love you more than wealth because you have saved us and wealth never did. There's no amount of money that paid for my sins. There's no amount of money that raised a dead body back to life. There is no amount of money that secures eternal life for me. There is no amount of money that gives me family and hope and growth and holiness you have done these things for us, Lord, and so we love you. And so teach us, Lord, to let us see our money as a part of that love. Let us not fall into the trap of asceticism and pretending 
that we can simply get rid of life in this world and love you. You haven't called us to do that. Again and again, Father, you have placed us in this world. You have told us that we do not get to leave it yet, that we are to seek the good of the city in which you've placed us. You have called us to work. You have called us to store up an inheritance for our children. You have called us to be safe and secure with what you've given us, to not oppress others with our foolishness or our wanton waste of wealth. You have called us to walk with our money in a way that pleases you. But Lord, remind us this very morning that we can only ever please you in Christ Jesus. And so let us see this morning, Father, that every drop of our wealth is him, so our strength is him. And let us see, Father, then that our wealth interacts with other people not by taking away from them, but by giving to them. Father, we don't even love as we want to be loved, but now in Christ you've called us to love as we've been loved by Christ. And so, Father, we pray this morning that our wealth would follow after that model. That we would never trust in its strength. And that we would never ignore, ignore the danger and oppression of greed. But instead, Lord, we would see that we can, with what you've given us, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. And so we pray, Lord, among your people that there would be an openness and an honesty about what you've given us. That we would not cling to society rules which have no basis in the scriptures. But instead, that Lord, we would be ready and willing and humble to care for one another financially, to give as has been given to us, to care for those who do not have provision in this world, Lord, and to lay open our lives to be corrected and changed by your word. Lord, deliver us. Deliver us from this present evil age and teach us the fullness of the treasure we already have in the kingdom of heaven.